This is Japan's largest Black Lives Matter protest to date, a weekend march that drew as many as 3,500 to the streets of Tokyo's Shibuya War. One theme highlighted by the recent Black Lives Matter marches in Japan has been the disconnect between the popularity of black culture and the discrimination that black people face in the country, something felt especially keenly by biracial black Japanese. I'm half black, half Japanese. I also live in the States and in Japan. And um, I felt racial discrimination uh, everywhere I've been. But uh, I think the main reason why we came together is uh, enough was enough. Like it's it's. It's like a never-ending cycle, and unless we stand up to do something about it, it's going to be never-ending. To be sure, several black Japanese media figures have become household names in Japan, such as the Enka singer Jiro, or the comedian Antony, or most famously, hip-hop artist Crystal K. Yet, despite this popularity, many biracial individuals in Japan, especially those of color, face bullying, discrimination, and marginalization from Japanese society. Perhaps there has been no more prominent embodiment of this disconnect than Miyamoto Ariana, a black Japanese woman who was crowned Miss Japan in 2015, only to ignite an online firestorm of vitriol and hate questioning her Japanese-ness because of her biracial background. Many cheered, but some Japanese complained that she didn't deserve the title. I don't mean to discriminate, one post read, but I wonder how a hafu can represent Japan. Another person expressed surprise, tweeting, I didn't know Miss Japan doesn't have to be pure Japanese. What a shock! I've lived in Japan all my life. But if I say I'm Japanese, people reply, no, you can't be. They don't believe it. It sounds strange, but for us mixed kids, we need this word hafu. It gives us an identity. What is the history of black presence in Japan, and how is it tied to the island of Okinawa? How are signifiers of blackness different in Okinawa than in the Japanese mainland? And what does the recent Black Lives Matter marches and popularity of black Japanese performers suggest about Japanese recognition of systemic discrimination and racism faced by biracial individuals? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the lived experience of black Japanese, I talked with Dr. Mitsi Uehara Carter, instructor of anthropology, East Asian studies, and the African and Africa diaspora program at Florida International University. Dr. Carter is the author recently of Routing, Repeating, and Hacking Mixed Race in Okinawa, published in Hapa Japan, Volume 2, Identities and Representations, edited by Duncan Dukin Williams and published by Kaya Press in 2017. I started by asking Dr. Carter to outline the history of Black presence in Okinawa. Okay, sure. It's kind of a complicated history. I think it really begins with U.S. troops arriving after World War II. But before I even kind of get into that, I, I want to talk a little bit about what it was like for Okinawans to encounter people who were so foreign physically to many of the, these ocean-going peoples. You know, these were folks who were accustomed to Southeast Asians through their travels and trades. But to encounter someone who was Black or white was really different. 
Okinawans had just undergone a devastating land battle. The landscape was totally decimated. People were traumatized from sheer violence of war, seeing their villages blown up, loved ones torn from them. You know, they were hungry. It was a brutal war. Nearly 240,000 people or so died in that battle. And over 100,000 of those folks were civilians. So that's like nearly a third of the civilian population. And there were folks like my mother, who was a survivor of that battle, whose village was flattened. It was really traumatic. So you can imagine sitting in this kind of dark, dank cave crowded with a lot of other families and some, you know, foreigners yelling into the cave, you know, announcing that the war was over. And when they come out, they see this person who my mom still says, you know, she remembers this. She has this very strong memory of looking at this man who looked like a goat. She's like, oh, he looked like a Yagi. He had this red hair and blue eyes. And, you know, and so eventually they saw more troops. Um, they encountered black soldiers and they found that, you know, the shock of it, but the memories that a lot of people have of these people who were so different was really a kind of merging with this traumatic fear of being, you know, just surviving this really brutal war. When they encountered black soldiers, they found that they were, you know, they were in segregated regiments, right? Often poorly resourced, often poorly trained. And it's in this time when this kind of transnational notions of blackness start to emerge in Okinawa. There were very kind of strong racialized narratives that people have in this very difficult occupation era. So from 1945 to 1972, when Okinawa finally reverted back to Japan, this is a period when there's like really kind of strong narratives that are forming about black folks. And there's an anthropologist named Rebecca Forgash. And she's written a lot about this time of occupation that sometimes, you know, that some Okinawans kind of remember white occupation soldiers very differently from black occupation soldiers. So, for example, white soldiers are remembered as kind of being warrior liberators who came with a lot of material wealth, power, food. And meanwhile, African-American and Filipino troops are remembered sometimes as perpetuators of crime and so we don't have evidence, really, that one racialized group committed more crimes than the others. But the way that military history narrates those stories sometimes get in the, stuck in that same pattern that much of U.S. history is often written. This discourse has access to interpret some of the stories from this era when segregation was normalized and Black lives so devalued. You know, these, these stories kind of mix to become part of this larger myths about Blackness that are circulating in Japan. I think... The meanings of blackness in Okinawa start to partially diffuse from this space, being like just in these militarized zones to other areas of Okinawa. When I was in Okinawa, for example, I, I conducted a lot of interviews with former military personnel who were stationed in this kind of tense pre-reversion era. And they frequently mentioned places like Koza, which is a town now today known as Okinawa City. And they, they mentioned these sites as a significant site of blackness, masculinized, sexualized area, right? And it's interesting to hear them talk about how blackness was being perceived in this kind of Vietnam War era and how it changes a little bit and mixes with those older narratives of blackness in the occupation era. So you have, for example, in Koza, there was this area, it was called Black Area, called Teruya, where military personnel within that city were segregated right, into racial spaces and businesses that cater to them also were segregated, right? So Teruya as a particular site is really important to understand how race thinking was operating in Okinawa, how Blackness was operating in Okinawa. I could go on and on about Teruya, but 
It's such an interesting place because it's it's really different from how you know blackness comes to be perceived in mainland Japan. You know, like w- when you think about Teri, it's it's a place that black soldiers called the bush. My father was stationed in Okinawa at this time, and he talked about it. I don't know, Tristan. Do you know what chitlins are? Uh, chitlins, yeah. Uh, I know that they're southern food, isn't it? Like yeah. the, like scrapple too. It's like yeah. whatever's left over after you know yeah. you cut everything else off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's it was a southern. Well, for some black people, I don't like chitlins, but it was like this, <laughs> this black soul food, right? And uh-huh. he would tell me that he would go up to Koza to get chitlins. There were Okinawan people who knew how to make chitlins for the black soldiers. And he would go there to get his hair cut, right? And so it was this place that was like this area that Black soldiers often kind of felt. They gathered in their off hours and they felt like that was a safe space. And oftentimes there are these intimate exchanges between Okinawans and Black soldiers. And so it was also a place that was kind of considered to be off limits to white soldiers. So it's in this area where these kind of conceptions of Blackness start to strengthen in its more overt visibility. My mother often, for example, talks about how Koza was this place that kind of helped to organize a lot of various meanings of Blackness she had growing up further south in Naha, because part of it is there were a lot of tensions between Black and white soldiers that erupted in like, you know, Okinawa media. And it helped to kind of define for them this idea that there is this kind of incommensurability, right? Somehow... Blood is this marker that's this more naturalized idea of race starts to be produced um, in the media about, you know, black and white. And it, it happens because of these kinds of the tensions erupting in sites like Koza. And, you know, these tropes of blackness start to, again, merge with some of the earlier occupation era ideas about blackness. You mentioned that the situation in Okinawa was much different from the mainland. And, and that is an excellent reminder. You know, when we think about all these photographs of the occupation, all these narratives of the occupation, it's always, you know, the white soldiers on the Jeep handing out yeah. chocolate and, and things yeah. like this. And, you know, we don't really see black soldiers forefronted as much. But, you know, there is work I, I, I'm here reminded of a photography of Ishikawa Mao, for example, who is mm-hmm. looking at you know, especially black soldiers, but then also uh, biracial children of those black soldiers mm-hmm. in places like Okinawa. And, but as you're saying, you know, American bases certainly aren't limited to Okinawa and certainly the presence of black soldiers isn't limited to Okinawa either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you discuss how some of these signifiers mm-hmm. of blackness are different in Okinawa as opposed to other places in the Japanese archipelago? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very different because of the way that war sticks to Black Japanese bodies differently in Okinawa. One of the things that I kind of often think about when I go to Japan is how Black people are seen in mainland Japan very differently because they might be seen as, yes, they might be seen as military, especially if you're near Yokohama, right? Or you might be a jet teacher, or you might be a business executive, or you might be a scholar. But in Okinawa, if you're American, but especially if you're a Black American, you usually means that you are there because you are somehow associated with the military or have SOFA status. You can move on and off base. So Blackness operates in a very different way there. I remember I was talking to this woman who's, she was part Black and Okinawan, and she told me that when she lived in Tokyo, she felt quite at ease. It was very easy for her to live there. But moving back to Okinawa was really hard. It was very different. I remember she said this. She said, you know, war sticks to us here. And her, her mother was from Itoma, which is in the south. It was really a war-ravaged area. So it's, it's, 
I think that residue of war, you know, comes from a mix of personal stories, and then those get heaped onto, you know, stories that are already circulating from military narratives that might move very sloppily in these kinds of spaces. So I think the signifiers are, are, are definitely very different in Okinawa and in militarized zones than in the mainland. You know, you have things like ways that people kind of related to black soldiers, for instance, in this kind of very spicy early 70s, late 60s, when the reversion movement was really kind of ticking up. People still remember the way that black descent starts to become organized on and off base in this period and in ways that didn't happen in mainland Japan. So what was happening there in Okinawa, there was this kind of quiet form of solidarity that starts to form between some anti-base Okinawans and Black servicemen who were kind of loudly expressing their anger at racist systems within the military about being drafted and going back to a country that might not let them even swim at beaches. You know, so they had this hope that they might be able to align with Black soldiers. There's a great scholar, Yuichiro Onishi, who found in his extensive research that although some Okinawans might have practiced things like Jim Crow-like protocols, you know, maybe even refusing to serve Black GIs altogether, there was a solidarity that started to emerge between Black and Okinawans that kind of spoke to what he calls this unresolved struggle within greater systems of domination. And so, you know, and you see this even in Okinawan literature, like Matayoshi Eiki, who's an Okinawan writer who has these great short stories. There's this one story he wrote about this character, George, who's this a white GI who's this real racist. And he sees Okinawans and his fellow Black GIs as being kind of on the other side of modernity. He sees them as savage-like, kind of as animal-like, and especially in kind of like these off base militarized zones. And in that story, Aki makes this really interesting decision to align the Black characters and the Okinawa characters against George, kind of illustrating almost like a, almost like a jagged connection between what some Okinawans might imagine to be possible. And so, you know, there's examples of like reversion activists like Akira Arakawa, who pushed for a strong solidarity with people of color. And he encouraged, you know, Okinawans to really kind of reject the category of Japanese-ness and reach out for new ontological categories, as, as Yuichiro Onishi has researched. And so I think that kind of interesting alliance that was short-lived, but still there in that period, also shapes Blackness in a different way than it might in mainland Japan. There's a different sensibility of Blackness there because of these particular historical conditions. In my previous episode with Dr. Marvin Sterling, he was talking about how marginalized groups in Japan, such mm. as you know, Ainu, Budokumin, mm. uh, people of Korean or Chinese ancestry, really embraced reggae mm. and some of the anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist messages in reggae and, and really mm. kind of embraced it as a way to express their own marginalized identities. I understand Okinawans you know, also mm-hmm. kind of see themselves victimized by the Japanese nation state at, at first yeah, in World absolutely. War II and, and then even in reversion again, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there is this kind of antagonism or maybe antipathy between Okinawans and mainland Japanese. Is this, you know, in the same way, is this maybe some reason for the solidarity that you're talking about? Yeah, I think there is some, you know, there, there's this, this, this kind of understanding of the legacy of, of being kind of pushed to the edges of the modern nation state, right? You're the kind of constitutive outside, right? And so 
you know, there is this, this understanding, especially at that moment. And this is what the Khosa riots partially became so entrenched for a lot of black soldiers who were fighting against this system of white supremacy. The, did, did you did you say Koza riots? Were, yeah. were there riots in this Koza? Oh wow! Yeah, I never heard of that. Do you, could you yeah. could you tell like a little bit more detail about these riots? Yeah, you know, so Koza is such an interesting site. So this is where they had uprisings in the 1970s, just before the reversion back to Japan. Some people might call them Koza riots, but a lot of Okinawans will call them the Koza uprising. Really, Koza was again right outside the main base of Kadena Air Force Base, this huge base in the middle of central Okinawa. And there had been a lot of discontent, a lot of accidents that were happening. And again, there was a big accident that happened. A serviceman hit an Okinawa person. People were kind of fed up and it led to folks trying to storm the Kadena Air Force Base gates. And it's in this moment, there's a great story that gets told of how some of the folks who were involved in organizing people at this time called for restraint towards African-American soldiers. There was a, a sentiment that, you know, look, they are going through something very similar to what we're experiencing. So, you know, leave those Black soldiers alone. <laughs> They're in the system, but they're not, you know, creating that system. And so there was a sense of com camaraderie, you know, that that's kind of quietly formed, not necessarily sustained, but there was this hope of liberation that was kind of transposed onto Black bodies, right, to really challenge that kind of colonial form of modernity, which had racialized Okinawans as Orientals and second-class Japanese citizens. I would say, though, that I don't think that most mixed Black Okinawans, especially my generation or older, were not assigned that same hope because we've often been, you know, feminized or positioned as having little to no agency to articulate our issues or position, you know, our dislocation between nation states. I think that, you know, while the hope of maybe some form of Black radicalism or conscious soulfulness might have been pinned onto black bodies to kind of create this new, like a new language for resisting Japan or the United States as well. I think mixed black Okinawans might have been positioned as culturally lacking the tools to resist those kind of high stakes racializing practices at work transnationally. So it's, it's complicated, you know. With the Black Lives Matters marches in Japan recently, one of the things that kept coming up on social media and in the protests themselves was love black people the way that you love black culture. And and outside of Japan, there was a lot of people, you know, surprised that, wow, Japan has black people. And and of course, Japan has black people. But there's also you know, increasingly a number of black biracial people that have become very prominent in Japan. The singer Crystal K, for example, was very popular even from when I was first in Japan in the early 2000s. But more recently, in 2015, Miyamoto Ariana, who is black Japanese, was named Miss Japan. And this caused all sorts of outcry on the internet, especially among the right-wing trolls in Japan, the net uyo. And they were criticizing her, saying, well, how can she re truly represent Japan? if she's not fully Japanese. And mm. since then, there's been a number uh, of Black Japanese who have become very prominent. We have tennis star Naomi Osaka, of course, mm -hmm. uh, more recently runners Sonny Brown and Asuka Cambridge, basketball player Adui Hachimura, baseball player Adui Okoye, and even comedian Anthony. And, you know, this kind of goes on and on. And there hasn't been the same kind of outcry and in fact, there's even been an embracing of these individuals. I'm wondering, is it because they're sports stars, they're athletes, they're comedians, and maybe you know this is different than some kind of 
you know, idealized representation of the nation? Mm. Or, you know, what what are your thoughts on this? And are we seeing a new moment now as a result of Black Lives Matter that Japan is starting to be more accepting of Black presence in Japan? Mm. That's a great question. Uh, you know, it's funny when I when I was in Okinawa doing field work, my mother used to say, uh, you know, be careful, you know, this, you know, some people might treat you like this or this. And I told her, you know, I'm actually being treated quite well. Uh, and she's like, oh, yeah, that's because of Jero. <laughs> you know, like, what? You know, that's the singer Jero. Uh, but anyways, I think that actually a lot of modern nation states have to contend with these kinds of issues of belonging and who and, and maybe even how their racial and ethnic minorities are supposed to belong and represent the nation, especially if it's an international stage, right? And especially if it's through the embodiment of women. And similarly, I think that that happened in, in with Miyamoto, right? More of the conversation around her win was emerging from international press than domestically. Some of the fringe comments were like, oh, she's not even 100% Japanese, like you said, you know, this really kind of underlying that hard to break essentialist myth that Japanese are somehow ethnically and racially by blood, you know, quote unquote, unique and pure. And her win is so interesting because she's so visibly multiracial. But Myra Washington, who's this great, she wrote this great book, Blasian Invasion. And she she made a really interesting case in, in her, her work talking about how the organizers of Miss Japan were really quite savvy in how they staged and projected a very particular image of Japan by crowning Miyamoto the winner. And she's basically being used as a sign of of Japan's more outward pronouncement of acceptance of its diversity and openness, even if that might be fully contradicted on the ground, right? That was the image they were trying to project. And the media, she she argued, I think, in her, her book was that there's a number of tactics that were being made by different presses. So to be made legible, right, to different kinds of audiences. So, you know, she was discussed more like using the U.S. logics of race as black in the U.S. press, and then in Japanese pageant organizers were portraying her as Japanese. And then she herself was using the word Blasian. I was actually having a conversation with my friend Etsumoto, who's the founder of Mixed Roots in Osaka, about this very question that you asked me. He, he said for a lot of Japanese, her win was not really a big, big deal because folks don't watch Miss Universe in Japan like they, or Miss Universe pageant like they do here. They watch things like the Tokyo Girls Collection, which is like this huge fashion show, like the biggest kind of female apparel kind of fashion show. And there's this woman named Maria Nakagawa, and she was the first Black Japanese to ever walk that runway. And that was a big deal because she was very outspoken. And she talked at the, the Hapa Japan Conference in LA a few years ago, and I talked to her afterwards. And she said, you know, it was the dynamics backstage on the runway that story she told was so telling to me of how Japan attempts to manage difference to make it kind of consumable for the nation. It, it, it was a story about how she was like getting ready to walk out, you know, the runway and she's ready to go. And they're like, no, 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 help, hold on. And so they, they had her go last, you know, they, there's this particular bracketing of blackness of her very visible difference, right? It's really symbolic, I think, of, of how belonging is shaped on the larger national stage. Right. There's almost this, there's a fear almost that without the bracketing, people might be too shocked. And it's managed in a way that's almost that's really ultimately humiliating for the people they're the very people they're trying to include at that institutional level, right? And she talked about how that incident really stood out for her. And she's a very strong advocate of terms like being 
called Black Japanese or asserting her blackness in ways that other maybe icons in pop culture might not do. And But you're right, there, there was kind of this guffaw at, at Miyamoto's win, right? Internationally, especially. And when it comes to Black Lives Matter, it, it has folks, I think, doing a lot of kind of navel gazing a little bit more. My friend Akiko Urasaki, who is a hip hop artist, goes by the stage name A Witch. She called me the other night. We had a two hour phone call about how hip hop artists like her in Japan can be more reflective, but also really kind of more strong agents of change in Japan. You know, could they do more than get out a general statement? And so we, we had a long conversation about you know, the use of the N-word that might be thrown out in Japanese <laughs> hip-hop to, you know, how do you, can you really authentically engage in real conversations about what it means to belong? I think the Black Lives Matter issues are really being pushed seriously now. I've been on a million Zoom calls. I know other people have been on Zoom calls in Japan, <laughs> you know, talking and helping to guide conversations to make real changes, to, to you know, get the education department to really make changes in the curriculum to, to address the legacy of eugenic thinking, to address Nihon Shakai legacies, to institute teacher training. You know, I think with Black Lives Matter issues circulating in the way that it's circulating in Japan, worldwide really, mixed race Japanese who are of, of African descent are asserting their identities in new ways. They're using terms like Blackanese. I, I don't tend to use that term so much myself anymore. You know, there is this kind of push to address their Black heritage more now. I know that recently there are folks like the Black Japanese baseball player, Rui Okoye, who recently came out and said to folks on Twitter, like, look, we've got to really address Blackness. We've got to address the implicit biases that people have towards Black folks. And that that's, I think that's becoming more acceptable. People are able to finally hear this. And we'll see, I think, from more people who are Black and Japanese feel more comfortable in expressing their own sense of belonging, how they felt that they've been excluded or included. And, and I, I think that's, that's positive. I think we will see a lot of good come out of this. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.